If you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. heaven as always we are grateful because you are good in so many ways and in particular father as we continue to study the word this morning we ask that you will help us to understand the words of christ we pray lord you would help us to to understand them in in light of the life that we live and how we live and how we think that lord that we will address those things that maybe point out in our life that are deficient when it comes to measuring up to the standard that you've set for us as believers. Father, I pray that you would give to us a desire to, to want to do that, as well as the strength that we need to, to consistently seek to become what you would have us to be. We thank you, Father, for the presence of your Spirit in our lives that interacts with your Word, that enables us, Father, to, to learn and to be transformed by your Word. So, as always, we do thank you as we ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 5, beginning in 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So here in Matthew 5, beginning in 21 and going all the way through verse 48, Jesus is going to give basically six examples of the righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Remember he said, unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom. And so he's going to explain to them and show them what that is. He's going to show them that the rabbinic interpretation of the law significantly reduced the standard that was intended by God. And he calls his disciples to pursue the righteousness that God intended. So he's going to be giving them a lesson on not only obeying and the importance of obeying the letter of the law, but also understanding the spirit of the law. How are we to think about this? What is it saying? And then what does, how does that apply to our living? When he says, you have heard that it was said, this phrase is not just a way of saying, here is what the law of Moses says. It's kind of a, it's a rabbinic phrase that was very popular back then, uh, where he may have said, we have heard it said, it means you have received by tradition. Jesus was referring to the interpretation of the law that they had received from the rabbis and or the scribes. So now he doesn't always state what the rabbinic interpretation is. He is assuming they know. He quotes the law they know how it's taught, and so he immediately jumps into, but I say, because he knows what they know. And so that's kind of what's going on as he interacts there with the audience. So what is Jesus doing? He is choosing a Mosaic command from the written law, and again, he's contrasting it with the Pharisaic interpretation of the commandment through the oral law. 
Remember the oral law, whether it's the oral law or their traditions, uh, those things recorded in what we call the Mishnah, all those are, are different ways of talking about the same thing when it comes to uh, what they were being taught. When, we, when I make reference to the rabbinic interpretation or if I talk about what the Pharisees said, that's the same thing. They're, those are two different individuals, but their teaching is, is consistent with each other. And, and so they're, they're kind of, there's a consistent teaching as a group, and Jesus wants those he's speaking to to understand that what they're doing is misleading them or basically diminishing the righteousness that God is demanding from us, and he's giving them, again, a proper understanding of the law. So he does this by not only contrasting it with the Pharisaic interpretation of the commandment, but at the same time, he continues to focus on the righteousness of the law. In other words, so it's not just about obeying the law, it is the righteousness that's required from you. Remember he said, unless your righteousness super abundantly surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not making it. So again, that is still his emphasis uh, in, in what he's teaching them um, at this juncture. So this righteousness, again, is not only required, uh, does not only require an external conformity, but it goes hand in hand with internal conformity. So it's not just the act, but it's also the intent of the heart that Jesus is concerned with. So as I've already said, it's the spirit of the law as well as the letter of the law. So Jesus then begins by saying, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So the judgment here refers to the penalty of death that was carried out by the authority of the local court. Leviticus 24, verse 17 says, Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. That's, simply that's what that is. Uh, human life is of great value. I do know that when it comes to what we call the death penalty here in America, you know, there are different individuals who are arguing, some for the death penalty and others arguing against the death penalty. Uh, and sometimes in those, those debates, there are believers who are against the death penalty. Uh, I would not be in that group. Um, I believe that the death penalty is appropriate and right in certain situations, most definitely. Uh, it was used by God here in the Old Testament. Uh, it's not to be carried out by a, uh, a mad group of individuals. It's the authority that's given to, to the government or to the ruling uh, party, so to speak. Um, I believe that when it comes to murder, that the death penalty should always be in play. Why? Because if we don't do that, we are devaluing human life because we are devaluing the value of the person who was murdered. Some try to flip the argument and say that we're devaluing human life by killing the one who's taken life. I think that's backwards. Uh, what we're saying is, is this life is of such great value and this sin is so egregious that the only proper way to render punishment to express the value of human life would be then the take of the life of the individual who dared to go against an individual created image of God and take their life. Now, the authority does have the right to show mercy and to give them life imprisonment, so I'm not necessarily against that, but I do believe, and I think it's biblical, a biblical stance, for uh, the death penalty to be on the table. Uh, and then however the government seeks to wield that, uh, that we have to the government. I guess you know that the inconsistencies we have with most governments is it is wielded inconsistently. Uh, and so there's, there's that problem um, that, we, that we need to deal with. But that concept is important. Um, it is not a barbaric concept. Um, it really comes from the mouth of God himself. Now, this is what the Pharisees did with the law. 
or with this law. The Pharisaic interpretation of this was that a person was not guilty of violating the righteousness of this command until he actually committed the act of murder. So they not only taught that you shouldn't murder, which would be the obvious thing, what they also taught was that you are still a righteous person or you possess righteousness as long as you don't actually take the life of an individual. And Jesus wants them to know that they're not reading the law the way they're supposed to. They're not thinking about it deeply enough. According to Jesus, it's a wrong interpretation. Again, it is true that a person does not violate the letter of the commandment until he commits the act. So therefore, he cannot be punished or executed until he commits the act. However, the issue here is more than just your actions. Again, the issue here is the righteousness of the command. And that righteousness is broken even before the act is committed. So before anyone commits the act of murder, they must first develop an internal animosity towards the victim. Now that can happen instantaneously. This is not like, well, you know, it was kind of the spur of the moment, so that doesn't, that's, it doesn't matter. There is, there is that sense of animosity. I've, I've spoken to, uh, when I say several murderers uh, in my time as a jail chaplain, it's, it's probably about a dozen. It's not like hundreds. Uh, but there's been those who I've talked to really in great detail about their crime, what they were thinking, what was going on um, in their mind. And in, in every case, it's always the same. There was animosity. There was hatred. There was this anger uh, expressed towards that person. They wanted to hurt that person deeply. In some cases, they, act, they, they will say, oh yeah, I wanted him dead. Uh, in other cases, it wasn't like they necessarily wanted them dead, but they didn't really care what happened. They, were, they, they wanted to hurt them bad. Um, and if that happened, then, then that happened. So there is this animosity that is there. So, and that's what Jesus is going to focus on, is the animosity. The moment that animosity has taken root in the heart, the righteousness of this command has already been broken. So that's the concern of God. So the concern of God is not that you um, don't commit the act. He, he doesn't want you to kill the individual. But he wants you to know that he's looking at more than that when he evaluates you. When it comes to the righteousness that's required to basically to live in heaven, you have already broken or ruined or destroyed that righteousness. You don't possess it because it's not the act of murder that shows you don't have it. It's this. It's this anger or this animosity. In fact, he basically says as soon as name calling begins in a tone of animosity, Rather than maybe just jesting between friends, the righteousness of the command has been broken. So whether name-calling or anger leads to the act of murder uh, or not, the righteousness of the command has already been broken. And that's what God is concerned with. And that's how he approaches it here uh, when, he, um, when, he, when he expresses himself. So the idea then, it can be expressed this way, it's, it's not that you're as bad as a murderer. He is saying you are one. Because he's looking at your heart. He's not saying that what he's saying is in your heart you wanted to kill the individual. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you're still a murderer. This animosity in the eyes of God equates to that. So that's the standard that he is setting for us. And so it matters a great deal that we think that way. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. So anger is one of the issues here. So now we're not, you know, we're not going to be doing a seminar on anger, but 
but anger is something that everyone does experience. Some issues, some individuals may have an ongoing issue of anger where they normally respond to things or maybe respond to many things in anger, and that is a very serious problem. But everyone experiences anger in their life. We become angry at other people, what they've said, what they've done, if they've betrayed us, or you know, maybe something that others may view as being trivial, but at the, in that moment, we don't see it as trivial. It may be something that everybody would recognize as being very serious, where we might even think, oh yeah, I know why they're angry. Well, you may know why they're angry, but that doesn't mean that it's a correct thing. Feeling angry towards an individual may be natural, doesn't mean that it's right. So we want to understand here what God is saying. Remember that our view of anger, the way we feel about it, in whatever direction you're taking this, remember that it comes from an individual who was born separated from God. It, it's coming out of a flesh that is not in tune with God. We, we had to be brought into the righteousness of Christ by Christ. Remember, we, we were the rebellious individual who thought only in sinful patterns and in sinful ways, and we've now become believers, and we now need to learn what it means to be a human being created in the image of God, which includes the way we think. So we want to make sure we, we avoid this idea that we're going to somehow find a way to justify anger in certain situations. Yes, the Bible does speak of a righteous anger, you may have experienced that once or twice. Often, maybe most of the time, our anger is not that. It is not a righteous anger. And so we need to begin, I believe, with that premise as we look at these things. And so here he makes it very clear that anger is a very serious issue and anger does not produce the righteousness that God requires. God requires righteousness from our life. So we do know again in the sense of our justification, that as we are saved as individuals, I possess the righteousness that's required for me to go to heaven. I possess that. But God also requires, he demands from me, that in my life, my day-to-day -day righteousness lives up to that. that I, need, I need to become that. Now, my salvation is not dependent on me becoming that because I've been saved by, by Christ. But God will discipline us, God will punish us if we are not pursuing that righteousness and living up to that. God wants us to pursue holiness in our lives. And that's not, again, just the outward acts that we participate in or act in, but it includes what's going on in our hearts or in our mind, what we're thinking, what our attitudes happen to be. Whether anyone else sees them or not is really immaterial. Uh, God is just explaining to us the truth. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So a lot of things that lead to anger, can create anger, are listed. He tells us here that um, bitterness needs to be put away in your life. It doesn't matter what you're bitter about. It doesn't matter if you feel justified. You are a Christian. You and I do not have the right to be bitter. That's how we need to think about it. We don't have that right. For us to remain bitter is an act of rebellion against God. So God is concerned about the way we feel. Sometimes we follow what the world says and we believe that we cannot help the way we feel. 
That's only true to a certain point. I'm going to feel what I feel spontaneously, but that spontaneous feeling springs from my heart. As my heart changes, then there will be less of that. And God is concerned about that. He talks about wrath. Wrath is more of that hot anger or explosive anger. That needs to be put away. Most of us would agree with that. But again, some people may feel justified in that. It doesn't matter. What does he say? But then he adds to that, and wrath and anger. So he's, he's telling us here in Ephesians, there's a difference between these two, but both have to be jettisoned out of your life. There's no place for this. There's no place for clamor, no place for slander, no place for malice. All that has to be done away with. And then it's not just that you don't do those things or allow those things in your life. Then that means that we are to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So it ends then with this, then the attitude that we are to have, the, the discipline we are to exercise towards others, because that's usually where the anger is, right? It's towards others. We are to be what? Forgiving. We are to be forgiving. We are to forgive. And just in case we want to try to find a way out of that, he says, oh, here's the standard. You forgive others just as God in Christ forgave you. So if you wanted to do this exercise, you can get a piece of paper and a pen, or you can get out your, your tablet, whatever you want to do. You make a list. Make a list of the sins that you've committed that God has not forgiven you for. And, and then the ones that appear on that list, you have a justifiable reason to hold against others. And I think what you'll find is your list will be very, very short because there'll be nothing on it. Right? Christ has forgiven you for everything. So what sin can be committed to you that you then have a right to not forgive? There is none. Now, I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying that, oh, yeah, well, we just decide to do this and it's done. There are going to be times when it's a struggle. There's going to be times when you are going to react in anger and you're going to be angry and you're going to be seething because the individual has deeply betrayed you or whatever the term may happen to be. It is at that moment we must ask ourselves as Christians, what is it that God wants me to do with this? How am I going to do this? You can't do that apart from God, that's for sure. But we don't have a choice. There's no choice there. If we choose to hold on to it, we're rebelling against the explicit commands of God. This, this is not like this is something that's just kind of hinted at. It's been pretty, it's spelled out pretty straight. Colossians chapter 3, verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. So the word must there means you're obligated. I'm a child of God. I am obligated to do this. In uh, Kittle's Theological Dictionary, it's one of those, like, it, it's a dictionary of Bible words. It's 10 volumes. Uh, so there's a lot of research that went into that. And um, there's a section called Human and Divine Wrath in the New Testament. And it goes to this comparison for many pages. And it says, so here's a, a brief uh, uh, bullet point thing about uh, anger that we need to think about. Number one, anger is one of the sins listed in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4. Point one. To refrain from it is to give place to God. That's number one. You refrain from anger. That means you are giving God that place in your heart. That's kind of the idea there. Number two, to yield to it, to anger, is to give place to the devil. So when we allow that anger to linger, you are in one sense actively displacing God and you're giving that place in your heart to the evil one. 
Now, it doesn't mean the evil one is actually coming into your life, but that's the idea, that's the picture that the Bible is drawing for us. Then it says, thirdly, if this leads to revenge, revenge of any kind, so it doesn't have to necessarily be some big elaborate thing, any kind of revenge, it is an infringement of the divine prerogative of judgment. Remember, think of it, remember this, judgment is sacred. God says he is the only one who's allowed to pass judgment on others. Now, this authority to judge in a limited way is given to human government for certain purposes. Judgment, and most definitely final judgment, is the prerogative of God alone. And so therefore it is sacred. So it's clearly, it's very important. And we don't have a right to wrestle what is sacred to use for ourselves. We will always use it wrongly if we did. James chapter 1 again teaches a forbearance that, like God's, is more ready to forgive than to yield to anger. Because again, anger does not advance true righteousness. The anger here in Matthew is a seething rage that is often a prelude to violent behavior. So again, a seething rage does not always mean that you are sitting there stewing and you can feel your blood pressure go up. Uh, we're very adept at expressing or maybe holding our anger in a lot of different ways. So you can actually have a very intense anger that is there that no one can tell. You seem to have a, a good attitude. You have great self-control. So, so the reason why I'm saying that is because sometimes what we do is when we hear like this definition, though, they have seething anger. We immediately picture in our mind this exaggerated uh, video of some guy who is maybe a little overweight, and you can see all the veins in his neck because he's seething in anger, and you say, well, I don't get like that. And when I, because I don't get like that, I'm dismissed from this discussion. That's not how that works. Right? God's looking at your heart, not if the veins are popping out in your neck. And, and so there can be a seething anger it may be a rage. It may be a smoldering anger. Uh, you know, that's, that, I, I would describe it this way. It's a very strong commitment of the will. I'm against this person. I can even be against this person in a very non-emotional way, which is very emotional. Uh, but you're committed to that, that kind of thing. So what does Jesus say again? You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Man, that's just a broad statement. Everyone who is angry with his brother. There's no outrage there. Just everyone who is angry. You're liable to judgment. Then he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And then he says, if you're offering up your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go and first be reconciled to your brother. The word insult there is simply to, to say something that's where you have contempt for an individual. So it doesn't mean that you're cussing them out or you're wishing they were dead. It's just you have a sense of contempt. You, you, you insult them. The word fool here, when he says you fool, that's just like calling someone an idiot or stupid because, you know, they're empty-headed. These seemed, when you read through this, these seem to be harmless words. 
uh, and they're put on par by the Lord to murder. It shows that these are very serious sins. They're very serious sins of, of the tongue in the eyes of God. And it carries a warning against ill feelings that may seem harmless. And so I think what this requires from maybe many of us is a paradigm shift. So I'll give an example. So let's say that uh, you've ever been around my family when a lot of them are together. We can be actually kind of loud, very vocal, um, a lot of sarcasm, an immense amount of sarcasm. And so we might, let's say we're all playing trivia, and let's say that I give some bonehead answer, and my daughter says to me, Dad, you stupid. Okay, that's, that's not what this is talking about. We're just jesting. It's not a big deal. However, and I know I use a lot of examples of my driving. That's because I know many of you drive like I do because I've watched you. Uh, and we can have these feelings. So, so it would be like this. So I'm, I'm driving down the road, and you know how it is. The individual who decides to, at the last moment, cut in front of you to get to the exit, but they haven't bothered to tell anybody about using a blinker. And they just come in front of you, you have to hit your brakes hard, and you know, you just, and so you, at that moment, you're, I mean, I'll be honest, I'm angry. Idiot. That's what he's talking about. I never thought of that as being sin against God. I never equated that to murder. That's what that is. That's, that's not just some, you know, people say, oh, well, Bob, good grief, we understand that. I mean, at the moment, there's, you know, all this stuff flashes through your brain and, you know, all kinds of things that can happen. That's true. But that doesn't excuse me saying that and displaying that attitude or even thinking it. Because sometimes, you know, we think things worse. You know, there was a, there's been a few comedians who've kind of pointed this out. And people will laugh whenever this joke, what's kind of, it's not really a joke. I guess this is kind of a, a visual uh, but the idea is that, you know, you're driving down the road and they ever say, did you ever wish that your headlights were 50 caliber machine guns? Yes. Clear the road. Well, yeah, that kind of thing. All right. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a 50 caliber machine gun, but it can do some serious damage. All right. So that, you know, that, 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 that can be, it's funny in a sense, but it's, it's not funny. And so we need to, we need to, re, we need to reevaluate this. So these little outbursts that we have, that we, we may think that we're justified, and it's not a big deal, it, it, it is. So again, you can, we can be jesting with each other, we can, we, I, we can call each other sometimes certain names, depends on whatever you allow in your house or whatever, but when it comes to this anger thing, he's very serious. And he, again, he says, if you're angry with your brother for any reason, I mean, that, that this kind of covers a whole gamut of things. There's no... There is no room in there for any kind of justification. I don't care if they've insulted you. I don't care if they've disrespected you. It doesn't matter. That's your ego that's speaking. You know, they didn't respect me. Well, that's not the first person. Right? There's people we've disrespected. What are you trying to say? We don't have a right to do that. We're Christians in this. I don't have a right to respond that way, even though this individual may have put me in danger. I don't know what's going on. Maybe he was a punk. Maybe it was some emergency. Who knows what it was? But the bottom line is, is that I don't, I don't have that right. I'm not God. I don't have a right to that. That means my heart still needs to change more. It does. That's what it means. My attitude still needs to be adjusted. These are not harmless words. 
And it's not just when you're driving. You know, that may be a, almost a silly example, but there's a lot of other things that, where there's individuals that we, we don't like them. You know, I mean, it gets, just again, remember what, what happened a few years ago when people were, and we still are, I guess, to a degree, where people are in, in um, disagreement about the whole COVID thing and all the various rules and lockdowns concerning COVID. And we have our opinions. Maybe our opinions are pretty strong. And how do we feel about those who don't share our opinion? That's what I was talking about. When it comes to politics, politics is incredibly divisive. You know that. How do we feel about those who we think are just being, they're, just, they're dumb. Why are they thinking that way? You know, when, when that emotion begins to ratchet up a little bit, all right, there's some anger there. We, you need to be careful. We, you're sinning against God. God is looking at that as he does murder. That, that's not just some over-exaggerated thing just to make a point. That, that's not, this is not hyperbole. That's what this is. He's, he's telling you, this is the way God is thinking, and this is what he's expecting from you and me. And he's expecting righteousness. That's what he's expecting. You see, if I have, if I have that kind of, that little bit of anger towards others who are thinking differently than I do politically, on maybe even the most important issues, that anger can, whether I display it or whether I'm holding it in, can get in the way of the most important thing, if that individual is a believer, what's their, what's their walk with the Lord? And, we, we don't, and be careful not to tie those two things together. I've heard people do it. Well, if they're a Democrat, they're clearly not walking with Christ. Okay, don't say that, because you don't know that. That's not true. They may be wrong. Right? We're wrong on things as believers. That happens all the time. We're wrong on lots of things. But we, don't dis, we don't diminish or just completely just excuse somebody because of, of some view they may hold. And it may be uninformed. It may not be. I don't even know where they're coming from. That's not important. But it gets in the way because we are commanded by the Lord to what? To love others. In fact, that's so broad, he commands us to love our enemies. So there's just, again, there's no room in this. So we cannot overlook these things. This is not some small thing, again, that Jesus is dealing with. It's very practical and very personal. So there needs to be this paradigm shift in the way we view the words that we use when we're angry. There is no harmless speech. And I want you to notice how important this is, because he wraps it up really very nicely by, by showing us how important this is to God. Verse 23, if you are offering your gift at the altar, one of the most important things you could do in the Old Testament was when you brought your gift, whether it was money or whether it was a lamb for sacrifice or whatever it had to be, that was, I mean, that was you, that's how you worshiped God. Those things were required in a good, God-loving individual is going to obey the law of God and bring these gifts and sacrifices to the altar. And he says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, you remember that that individual has a problem with you of, of any kind, leave your gift. Don't offer it. Just leave it and go to that individual and first be reconciled, then come and offer your gift. It really goes hand in hand with what, what um, God said to, um, to Saul, that to obey is better than sacrifice. So this is so important that 
When you come, some of you, I don't, I don't know what's going on in your lives, but some of you might be sitting in church as an act of sin. Because you know there is something between you and someone else, and you've, not, you've done nothing about it. Now, this doesn't say that if they accept whatever you're doing, you, have to, you can't go to church until they accept it. You need to do, the Bible says in Romans, as much as possible, depends on you, be at peace with all men. And that's what you do. If they reject your, your offer, if they, re, if they refuse to forgive you, there's nothing you can do about that. That's on them. You've done what you can do. You want to maintain a good attitude. You can come and you can worship. All right? But we don't want to have such a low view of worship and such a low view of God and such a low view of his righteousness that we think, oh, that doesn't matter. I'm just going to go to church. That matters very much. But then again, don't have such a low view of God and a low view of the law and a low view of righteousness by saying, well, I can't go till I get it fixed, but you do nothing about it. So all that reveals the same problem is with you. God wants us to be actively pursuing these things. And so again, as much as possible, and as much as possible, as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. And then your offering, because we are really making an offering to the Lord as we worship, that is acceptable to God. He's not looking for perfection. He's the one who perfects us. But he's looking for obedience. And in the, in the realm of things, it's not that hard. It's clearly not hard to understand. But we just can't go through life not thinking about it. And ask the Lord. I'm, I'm convinced of this. You ask the Lord to point out to you if you have issues with anger or issues with an individual, I'm convinced within a matter of moments there'll be some very clear things in your head. I don't think God will speak from the sky, but there will be just certain names will just be there. Now that person might be your spouse. It might be your wife or your husband. They got, if there's a problem in the marriage where they have a problem with you and you're not doing anything about it, I don't know, I know this sounds bad, but I don't know why you're here. Are you, are you, you think somehow God's impressed in heaven? Oh, well, they're in church. No, 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 no. God wants obedience from all, the, all of us completely. And so we need, we, need to, we need to make sure we're paying attention to that and that we're asking for forgiveness, that we're forgiving others, that we're seeking to reconcile. And then we can come here, and if they still hold the grudge, then, then let that be on them. But we need to make sure that we're doing what we need to do. God takes these things extremely seriously, and we must do the same. And I, and I believe God will honor, because he says he will, he will honor those who seek to honor him. And the best way to honor the Lord is to submit or to obey what he says. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your goodness to us. And Father, we pray that you will help us to evaluate our lives in light of what Christ has taught us here. Father, we, we may be guilty of thinking that many things we've said are simply harmless words, and they are not. We, many of us may be thinking that we are, not that we would actually think these terms, but we kind of have an attitude that we are far superior to others because we've not taken a life. Yet, Lord, many of us are probably still guilty of that because our hearts are dark. Father, we pray that you would reveal these things to us and that you help us to get things right with you and with others. Thank you, Father, again, for the clear teaching of the Word of God. 
We pray, Lord, that even though we fail others, that perhaps our lives will speak well of you when they see that we are living in willing submission to your word and that we have disregarded our own ego to do what's right. And those, Father, who seek to live that way, I pray and ask you would bless them tremendously for their obedience. So that, Father, their hearts would be encouraged that you are aware of what they are doing and they are doing the right thing. And I ask, Lord, for those who may need to go to someone and either forgive or seek forgiveness, I pray, Lord, that they will find success. I pray that, that it will be there. We know, Lord, that in cases where it comes slowly, we pray that you will give them wisdom and patience and, and a loving attitude towards those that they differ with. Forgive us, Father, for the times that we have held angry feelings against those who don't hold the same views we hold about certain social issues or political things. Come as Father to recognize the most important things in life. And Father, for those who don't know Christ, I do pray, Lord, that they would come to realize that anger is a big part of the life because you are angry with them. You're angry with them over their sin and their rebellion against you. And I pray that they would recognize by your spirit that your anger towards them is purely justified in every way. And there's no way to escape the wrath that is coming upon them except through Christ. And they will come to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you again, Father, for your incredible patience with us and for your mercy by not always allowing us to reap what we sow, but holding that back to give us time to repent, to change our ways. We thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.